0: You shall be quiet. All right, who does he think he is? I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, I can become king, then. The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest, shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! If I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Well speaking of conservative candidate, I just drone on and on and on and on, never letting anyone else get a word in his ways until I start filling at the mouth and falling over backwards. Welcome one and all to the eighth episode of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing. And today I don't want to spend too much time in introduction. I just have One very important announcement. That is, if you're listening to the podcast, you probably already know or have some inclination. That is, I'm changing the official release date of Naples Ultra. It'll still be at the same time, which is 4 Pacific Standard Time, 4 PM that is, and 7 PM Eastern Standard Time. However, the day of release is officially being changed from Wednesday... To Friday. It just makes so much more sense for my own personal schedule to release this podcast every Friday. It just means that the weekends can be the weekends for me as well as I like the idea of putting it out on Friday and then giving people the entirety of the weekend to listen to it and then hopefully coming back on Monday with some important things to say. So this will work out better for me and I hope better for everyone else. I also want to take this time to officially thank everyone who donated through Patreon. It's a very humbling experience for me, and I promise to never, ever take your support for granted. As well, another reminder is that Naples Ultra is on Twitter. The handle is at NPUpodcast, so follow me there for up-to-date information about what's going on with the podcast, as well as I like to tweet about what's going on in the world currently. For example, I tweeted during the New Hampshire primaries. Stuff like that. I want to create something that's more live in the moment. Because with a podcast that's released every week, you can't really talk about things as they're happening. They have to be talked about after the fact. So I like to use my Twitter to talk about things as they're going on. We also have a new page on the website. And that is the Support Us webpage. And that gives you all the information if you want to donate as well as other ways you can help support the podcast if you don't want to support it in a monetary fashion. And with that, I've said everything that I need to say, so without further ado, let's start Episode 8 of Naples Ultra, Free Will Fallacies. Well, there may be no score, but there's certainly no lack of excitement here. As you can see, Nietzsche has just been booked for arguing with the referee. He accused Confucius of having no free will, and Confucius, he say, name-go-in book. And this is Nietzsche's third booking in four games. And who is that? It's Karl Marx. Karl Marx is warming up. It looks as though there's going to be a substitution on the German side. Obviously, manager Martin Luther has decided on all-out attackers. Indeed, he must with only two minutes of the match to go. But the big question is, Who is he going to replace? Who's going to come off? It could be Jaspers, Hegel, or Schopenhauer. But it's Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, who saw his auntie only last week. And here's Marx, let's see if he can put some life into this German attack. (laughs) Evidently not. Freedom, in case you haven't noticed, is one of my favorite topics on this podcast. We talk a lot about your rights to freedom, and at what point those rights are violated. We talk about your freedom of speech and what appropriate or inappropriate boundaries there are surrounding our expression. Today, however, we're going to be talking about your freedom of action, and whether or not this is something you can truly be considered to have in your life, or is your freedom of action merely an illusion? Today, we're going to be examining the question that virtually every philosopher has at some point considered during the duration of their lives. And it's time for us to take up the sword and consider it as well. Today we're going to be talking about whether or not human beings do in fact have free will. Free will is one of those topics that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So, we really have to narrow in exactly what we're going to be doing today and how we define free will. In order to do that, let me give a little bit of backstory and talk about what inspired this episode in the first place. Just like most people, I'm inspired by the people around me, whether those people be in a virtual sense or an immediate physical sense. And in this case, As I so often am, I was inspired by my wife. Because we have an ongoing debate as to whether or not free will exists. She's firmly embedded in the camp that free will does not exist. And I'm embedded in the camp that it does. She's definitely inspired by the German philosopher Nietzsche. Nietzsche was one of the first philosophers to really push and pioneer this idea that human beings do not have free will. And Nietzsche is a philosopher who I personally do not like. And that's a conversation for another time. What I do think is interesting, though, is that when you track chronologically the philosophical thought surrounding free will, you'll see that as time has gone on, Free will has become less and less of a popular concept, that now it is the opinion of the majority of philosophers that we do not have free will. And I would say a large proportion of the general population accepts this as well. I just find it interesting that as our actual freedoms have gone up for the majority of people, those who argue for free will have gone down. And to me, this is very curious, and I'm not entirely sure why this is the case. For now, though, let me lay out the two sides my wife and I are on in this argument. So, my wife argues that there are all these different things in life that I want to do but can't, and therefore, I don't have free will to do what I truly want. I, on the other hand, take the position... Yes, you do have the option to do what you want. However, there are consequences surrounding your actions, and those consequences must be weighed before you commit to something. You must decide whether or not the consequences of an action outweigh the benefits or vice versa. And to me, this only adds to our free will that we have the free will to decide whether or not We want to defy the consequences for our actions, or accept those consequences and still commit to the action readily. To me, I feel just because free will isn't easy, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. My wife argues that at any point in time, as soon as there are consequences or other surrounding variables in terms of your action, then free will is violated. Free will means being able to do whatever it is you want to do without facing any consequences. And to me, this definition is just too high a bar to set. Essentially, that means free will can never exist. Under this definition, the only way free will can happen is if whatever it is you want is essentially available to you or made quickly available to you. And here on earth, I believe even the most powerful and wealthy people cannot achieve that definition. That the only place under this definition free will can exist is in some sort of other dimension or some sort of heavenly area where all our wishes are granted without much hesitation. For me, though... I see it as perfectly logical and rational to assume that both consequences and free will can exist together. And much of our lives revolve around overcoming these obstacles so we can, in fact, express our free will as humans. And that, to me, is part of the fun of it. What's strange, though, is that this debate and the lines that we've set out are generally very similar to the same lines that philosophers themselves will set out when asking questions about free will. For example, philosopher and writer Sam Harris has a great essay on the subject of free will, and it gives us a great position for us to start off our topic. Sam Harris, another person I would love to invite on this podcast But let me read you the introduction from Sam's essay on free will to help us get our bearings here a little bit. Sam writes, Free will is a philosophical term of art for a particular sort of capacity of rational agents to choose a course of action from among various alternatives. Which sort is the free will sort is what all the fuss is about. And what a fuss it has been. Philosophers have debated this question for over two millennia and just about every major philosopher has something to say about it. Most philosophers suppose that the concept of free will is very closely connected to the concept of moral responsibility. Acting with free will on such views is just to satisfy the metaphysical requirement for being responsible for one's actions. So, what Sam is saying here is that a lot of philosophers have seen free will as merely a condition for you to be responsible for your actions. That is, if you're viewing free will under the guise of moral responsibility. And not necessarily as we're looking at free will as it is, which is the freedom of action of rational agents. So, Sam is trying to separate the two here. He continues, Clearly, there will be epistemic conditions on responsibility as well, such as being aware or failing that, culpably unaware, of relevant alternatives to one's action and the alternative's moral significance. So, here he's just expanding on that previous point. Just a quick definition here. Epistemic. Or epistemology is one of those really complicated philosophy words that doesn't mean anything really complicated at all. All that it means is knowledge or the theory of knowledge. So he's saying that when you're looking at free will as an agency of morality, there has to be these knowledge conditions for that to come into effect. So he's saying there needs to be conditions of what people can know in terms of their moral significance. So if you commit an immoral action but are unaware of the alternatives, then you haven't really done something immoral. However, if you are aware of alternative actions or should be aware but are not, then you should be held morally responsible. So that's all he's trying to say here. Moving on. But the significance of free will is not exhausted by its connection to moral responsibility. Free will also appears to be a condition on desert for one's own accomplishments, why sustained effort and creative work are praiseworthy on the autonomy and dignity of persons, on the value we accord to love and friendship. Philosophers who distinguish freedom of action, and freedom of will do so because our success in carrying out our own ends depends in part on factors wholly beyond our control. Furthermore, there are always external constraints on the range of options we can meaningfully try to undertake, as the presence or absence of these conditions and constraints are not usually our responsibility. It is plausible That the central loci of our responsibility are our choices, or willings. So now, as you can see, we're getting into the heart of what we're talking about today. How do we, as philosophers, contend with this external stimuli? And how all these outside variables interact with our free will? Does this interaction nullify free will? Does it diminish it? Or something else entirely? This is what we're trying to get at. Back to Sam. I've implied that free willings are but a small subset of willings. And by willings here, he's substituting the word choices. Back to Sam. At least as a conceptual matter. But not every philosopher accepts this. Rene Descartes, for example, identifies the faculty of will with freedom of choice. Quote from Descartes, The ability to do or not do something end quote from Descartes, and even goes so far to declare that, quote from Descartes again, the will is by its nature so free that it can never be constrained, end quote by Descartes. In taking this strong polar position on the nature of will, Descartes is reflecting a tradition running through certain late scholars. The majority view, however, is that we can readily conceive willings that are not free. Indeed, much of the debate about free will centers around whether we human beings have it. Yet, virtually no one doubts that we will do this and that. The main perceived threats to our freedom of will are various alleged determinisms. Physical slash casual, psychological, biological, theological. For each variety of determinism, there are philosophers who, one, deny its reality either because of the existence of free will or on independent grounds, two, accept its reality but argue for its compatibility with free will, or three, accept its reality and deny its compatibility with free will. There are also those who would say the truth of any variety of determinism is irrelevant, because free will is simply impossible. If there is such a thing as free will, it has many dimensions. In what follows, I will sketch out the freedom-conferring characteristics that have attracted the most attention. The reader is warned, however, that while many philosophers emphasize a single characteristic, perhaps in response to the views of their immediate audience, it is probable that most would recognize the significance of of many of the other features discussed here. So, we're going to end this for now. However, I'm going to come back and read what Sam thinks about free will closer to the end of the topic, but this gives us a great base to start off our discussion. Sam has defined free will, at least in the sense we're looking at free will right now, and briefly outlined some of the arguments for and against free will, and which issues prevent us from coming to a reasonable conclusion on the subject? The specific part I do want to draw attention to, though, is the area where he talks about free will and all its various determinisms. He lists a few of them. Physical, casual, psychological, biological, theological, and so on and so forth. He says that there are three ways we can talk about this as someone who argues for free will. When confronted with these various determinisms that deny us our free will, we can either A, deny the reality of that determinism, or say that free will is existent independent of it. We can B, accept the reality of that determinism and argue that it is compatible with free will, or C, accept the reality of its determinism and agree that it does infringe on free will, but free will still exists, or D, none of the above. We can deny free will completely and utterly. So, when looking at those choices, I realize that I personally have used all three of them at some point in my life to defend the concept of free will, which to some extent shows that it can be a scattershot argument, because honestly, I believe the argument for free will is harder than arguing against free will. That is because the burden of proof is on me. I am the one who's claiming something exists, therefore I have to present evidence for it. The burden of proof always rests with the person claiming something is existent, rather than the person denying said existence. But before we continue, I want to bring up another possibility that Sam missed in his essay. The possibility that this whole conversation is really a moot point. Because I think we can all agree that we have the capacity to make our own independent choices for ourselves. That ultimately, once we've taken into consideration all the surrounding variables, we are, to use a Bushism, the decider. So when you boil it down, what we're really debating about is whether or not human beings have free will or simply act like they have free will. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, how different are those possibilities really? Because even if we decide that human beings don't really have free will, that we just act like we have free will, then you still have to take that into consideration when examining human behavior. Because you must account for the fact that human beings are going to act as though they have free will. So in a sense, you have to act as though free will still exists. Because if you assume that we're just hurtling forward on this deterministic path, you're going to make false assumptions about the way people behave. Therefore, by default, you're forced into the position of conceding that, at least in some sense, free will exists. Because human beings believe it exists. The follow-up to this argument is obviously just because you believe something exists. That doesn't mean it actually exists. And that's what we're here to figure out. This runs into some problems too. Because if you accept that humans merely act like they have free will and don't actually have free will, then you have to claim that free will is separate from human consciousness and doesn't exist within the realm of human consciousness. Because if this freedom of decision-making that human beings have, obviously, is merely the illusion of free will, then we have to move outside the realm of human consciousness in order to discover if free will is existent or not. So, the obvious place to move next is to the human unconscious mind. And honestly, there is actually some pretty good physical evidence to disprove that free will exists in the conscious mind. And I'm not talking about theoretical evidence, but actual hard, scientifical studies. One of the most famous studies that have come out on the subject of free will involves the use of an fMRI machine to scan the participant's brain before they make a decision. So, the decision was a simple one, simply which one of two buttons they were going to press, and before they decided which button they were going to push, their brain lit up, sometimes in excess of seven seconds before making the decision. And this allowed the researchers to determine which button you're going to push before you push it. Here's the thing, though. I remember when this study first came out, it garnered a lot of media attention. And everybody was out there saying, oh my god, it's over, we've proven free will doesn't exist. What everybody seemed to fail to recognize is that the researchers were only able to guess which button you would push with 60% accuracy. Under the rules of psychological experimentation, this is considered a statistically significant finding. And it most certainly is statistically significant. However, when we take a step back and take a look at this study as part of the bigger picture, then I would say a prediction machine with a slightly better ratio than a coin flip is not enough to disprove free will. The researchers came out and said that it's probably failings within their own methodology that led to such a poor success rate. However, I haven't seen this study replicated with better results. And if it's out there, I'd love to see it. But that's just the surface interpretation of this study. And we're not about surface interpretations here. We want to go deeper. And I want to ask the question, even if they created a study that could predict which button you were going to press with 100% accuracy, how does that necessarily disprove free will? Cognition is a complicated brain process. So, it's only logical to assume that we would see some brain activity before a thought becomes conscious. Our brain is conducting unconscious activities all the time, including things like problem solving. So, when you get a complicated math question, and you're sitting there staring at it for half an hour and just can't figure out the right answer and leave it alone, your brain doesn't stop thinking about that math problem. However, hours later, maybe when you're sitting down to dinner, all of a sudden, you'll have the solution. Because your brain has worked on it subconsciously and managed to figure out a solution. So, just because your brain shows unconscious activity before a decision becomes conscious, to me, that doesn't rule out free will. That's just part of the whole free will package that your brain includes. But let's say that it does overwrite free will, that this study conclusively proves that free will doesn't exist. What does that mean? Well, essentially, according to the study, what it would mean is that it's your brain, your unconscious brain, that's in charge of all your decisions, and not necessarily your conscious mind. So that then begs the question, who controls your brain? Is it God? Is it this unforeseen, deterministic path? Or, if you'll forgive the pun, does your brain have a mind of its own? If you say it's God or determinism controlling your brain, well, then I get to take a break. Because the burden of proof is no longer on me. The person claiming God or some other mysterious force is controlling our brain, now has the burden of proof but to me the other option is far more interesting that your brain is essentially rogue it's got a mind of its own and it's really the head honcho it's nice enough to let us think we're in charge but ultimately the brain is the head honcho and what it does unconsciously is the decider of all our actions however this again runs into serious problems because for one it says that our brain and conscious thought are two different things, that these things aren't intertwined together. And to me, I absolutely think that they are. Your brain and consciousness are not two separate things. Let me explain it like this. Let's say your conscious decision making process is the president and the brain is his loyal administrator. The president isn't partaking in the day-to-day mundane administrative tasks to keep the country, or in this case, your body running. As well, the president isn't privy to all the information and, in some circumstances, delegates smaller choices to his lower administrators. However, when those big, life-changing decisions need to be considered, it is the president who will make the ultimate decision on them. So, in this case, just because your brain is doing a lot of the submersive administrative tasks and sending information to your conscious mind so it can make decisions, that doesn't mean that it overrules you. Because you have the choice to overrule your brain at any point in time. And that, to me, is what free will truly is. Your ability to make decisions solely on your own. You'll see people point to genetic indicators that show you're predisposed to certain choices. And people will bring up twins who are separated at birth, but still somehow remain remarkably similar to one another. Having the same jobs, having the same tastes, and in some cases, having the same name for their spouses. However, none of these overrule free will. Because all of these variables are just prediction factors into what you will choose. That doesn't mean you will choose them because you have free will and can ultimately overrule things you are predisposed to. As well, we can sit here and use prediction markers to predict any number of different things, but that doesn't mean that is what's going to happen. I mean, we can all sit here and predict that the Panthers are going to win the Super Bowl. However, as we know, That's not exactly how it turned out. So, the whole point here is that I feel that in order to deny free will, you have to have some sort of way of denying human decision making. And there's a number of ways that people will do this, which we've seen as the show has progressed. They will say the human ability to make their own decisions isn't enough to satisfy the condition of free will. There are all these other variables which deny us the decisions that we really want to make. And therefore, human decision-making isn't enough in and of itself to prove free will exists. And this is the difference between my wife and I. For me, free will is the ability to make your decisions. And for the most part, we could make the decisions that we really want to. However, there are consequences for those decisions. And just because there are consequences, that doesn't, to me, invalidate free will. So what we really have here between my wife and I is a difference of definitions. She has a much higher standard for what she sets as free will. To me, her standard is far too high. So high, in fact, that it could never exist in our everyday lives. And she would argue the opposite, that my definition is too low. Just because humans can make decisions, that doesn't mean we can make decisions freely. And the debate of where exactly you set that bar for free will is going to continue on for quite some time. For the second method that people will use to deny free will, we return once again to Sam Harris. And let me read you the summation of his paper on the subject. Sam writes, A recent trend is to suppose that agent causation towards capture, as well as possible, are reflexive idea of responsible free action. But the failure of the philosophers to work the account out in a fully satisfactory and intelligible form reveals the very idea of free will and so of responsibility is incoherent, or at least inconsistent with a world very much like our own. Simlansky takes a more complicated position on which there are two levels that we may access freedom, compatibilist and ultimate. On the ultimate level of evolution, free will is indeed incoherent. Before I get to his second paragraph, I just want to say that's a really good way to describe it. Compatibilist and ultimate versions of free will. I guess I would say I'm a compatibilist. And I do agree, for the most part, that an ultimate version of free will is incompatible with our everyday lives. Moving on, Sam continues, The will has also recently become a target of empirical study in neuroscience and cognitive psychology. Benjamin Liebert conducted experiments designed to determine the timings of conscious willings or decisions to acts in relation to brain activity associated with the physical initiation of behavior. So, we didn't talk about Liebert's very famous study in the podcast, but it is similar enough in spirit that we can substitute our fMRI study in its place for the purposes of reading this paragraph. Sam continues, interpretation of the results is highly controversial. Liebert himself concludes that the studies provide strong evidence that actions are already underway shortly before the agent wills to do it. As a result, we do not consciously initiate our actions, though he suggests we might nonetheless retain the ability to veto actions that are initiated by unconscious psychological structures. Wagner amasses a range of studies, including those of Liebert, to argue that the notion that human actions are initiated by their own conscious willings is simply a deeply entrenched illusion, and proceeds to offer a hypothesis concerning the reason this illusion is generated within our own cognitive systems. However, many scholars argue that the data accrued by Liebert, Wagner, and others wholly fail to support their revisionary conclusions. So, in his second paragraph, Sam brings up the second way people will try and deny free will. That is, through the use of various neuroscientifical tests, and as discussed before, these tests fall well short of disproving free will, because they have one philosophical flaw, and that is that they assume that your brain and conscious thought are two separate entities not working together. That somehow one has free will and the other invalidates free will. I don't believe just because there is unconscious activity before a conscious decision is made, that doesn't mean that your brain has somehow made a decision without you. Or if you argue that something else is controlling your brain, such as a deterministic path, or god, or some other mysterious horse, then you begin to devolve into a conversation that is more about theology than philosophy. And that's not a road any of us are going to go down right here, right now. The third way they try and disprove free will is through genetic predictors. They will say there are all these environmental predictors, these nurture predictors, these genetic predictors, and they have already come together to form the person you are and what you are or not predisposed to before you have even taken a single breath. And again, just because you can predict something will happen, that doesn't mean it will happen. And ultimately, we have the decision to decide what we're going to do regardless of what we are predisposed to do. Going the route of what we are predisposed to do is certainly easier for us to do as individuals. But because we have free will, we can always take the hard path if we so choose. Going back to an analogy we used earlier, you are the president of your own conscious thought and decision making. That, at the very least, no one can deny you. Whether they believe in free will or don't believe in free will. So... Use that power wisely, because it's one of the most important powers you have in life. And with that, we are at the end of the 8th episode of Naples Ultra. I hope you guys enjoyed this examination of free will, and I'm happy we were able to have this conversation, because it's such a huge philosophical conversation, and one we will be having probably several hundred years into the future. Because, unfortunately, there's no way, so far, we can prove or disprove free will. So, it doesn't matter where you come out on the issue. You can argue easily for either side. And that's one of the reasons that this debate is so compelling. And I'm glad we got to have it. But I think this is something we are going to return to in the future. But for now... I want to thank you guys for listening to our third argument episode of Naples Ultra. And stay tuned for section number two, where we're going to deal with listener feedback. So sit tight, everyone, and I'll see you in a couple seconds. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the listener-fueled segment of Naples Ultra. Today, we've got a lot to talk about and not a lot of time to do it. So I'm going to jump right in by covering current events. Continuing our ongoing coverage of the United States primary election, we have to talk about New Hampshire. Last week, it was all about Iowa. But everybody's forgotten about Iowa, so it's time to talk about New Hampshire. And New Hampshire has a different voting system. All of the states have slightly different voting systems. In New Hampshire's, it's simply a paper ballot. It's not a caucus where you get all these random vague headcounts and coin flips. No, you just mark a ballot, the good old-fashioned way. The wrinkle in New Hampshire's system is that registered independents can also vote in the primary if they choose to. So it's not just Democrats voting in the Democratic primary and Republicans voting in the Republican primary. People with no official party affiliation can choose to vote in one of the primaries. However, they can only vote in one, not both. So you have a larger cross-section of individuals voting in the New Hampshire primary. Long story short, the people everybody thought was going to win won. However, they won by a larger percentage than people expected. So, let's go over the results here. On the Republican side, Donald Trump finishes first with 100% of the vote reporting at 35.3% and 10 delegates. Right after him is John Kasich, finishing with 15.4% and 4 delegates. In third, Ted Cruz receives 3 delegates at 11.7%. Jeb Bush in 4th with 11% and 3 delegates. And finally, Marco Rubio at 5th with 10.6% and 3 delegates. So, we can see Donald Trump won by a substantial margin. Almost 20 points more than the second place finisher. And parsing the results here, I don't think it could have gone any better for Donald Trump. Not only did he defeat his opponents by a wide margin and finally gain the electoral victory that he's been wanting to have all this time, the fact that John Kasich came in second is probably even better for him. John Kasich, in case you don't know, is the Republican governor of Ohio, and he's seen as a very reasonable and moderate man. He's on the campaign trail with a message of compassionate conservatism and working together with your fellow human beings to get things done. By all accounts, he's a very able governor, and a man who I respect a lot. Kasich finishing second here was a surprise to most people, as they didn't see him as a particularly fierce contender for the Republican nomination. However, a couple of great debate performances and old-school ground game politics gave him the edge he needed to climb into second place. The reason this is good for Donald Trump is because John Kasich is probably the least threatening to him. He doesn't have the establishment support that Jeb Bush has or the fundraising prowess that Marco Rubio has. So without those particular advantages, I think John Kasich has an uphill battle when it comes to defeating Donald Trump. But let's talk about Jeb and Marco. I tweeted out a prediction that by the end of the New Hampshire primary, Jeb Bush would drop out of the race. I suppose I was wrong because... He finished just enough for him to limp onwards to the next primary. But the real story here is the utter collapse of Marco Rubio as a candidate. Coming out of a surprisingly strong finish in Iowa, people believed he had the momentum for an extremely strong showing in New Hampshire and then continually building up to be a real competitor to Donald Trump. However, his performance at the debate before New Hampshire was a complete and total disaster. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie just kept hammering him with body blows about his prefabricated talking points. And when challenged on these prefabricated talking points, all that Marco could do is simply repeat those talking points. And he looked like a complete and utter clown. So people, after looking at this debate, thought Well, if he can't succeed in a far friendlier Republican environment, he's going to get completely roasted in an actual presidential debate against a Democratic nominee. And people fled the Marco ship en masse. So, to summarize the story on the Republican side, Donald Trump is back and he's got the momentum he needs to carry him through to the ultimate conclusion of the nomination process. He has recovered from his loss in Iowa. And now, once again, looks like the inevitable GOP nominee. Now, let's talk about the Democratic side. On the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders finishes with a total of 60.4% of the vote and 15 delegates in comparison to Hillary Clinton's 38.0% and 9 delegates. It was a complete and utter rout by Bernie Sanders. People thought he was going to win but they didn't think he was going to win by 22 points, the largest margin anyone has ever won in New Hampshire. As well, New Hampshire is a state known for electing Clintons. It elected Bill Clinton in 1992, which re-energized his campaign after a disastrous showing in Iowa. And in 2008, they elected Hillary Clinton after she got beat by Obama in Iowa. So losing this badly to Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire was probably a very bitter pill for her to swallow. And now Bernie Sanders has a ton of media attention and people are really starting to pay attention and think there's a chance he can win this thing. There's a real chance he can win this thing. With the polls tightening on a national scale, The thing to look for coming out of New Hampshire on the Democratic side is whether or not Bernie can take his momentum and translate it into votes in the upcoming Nevada and South Carolina caucuses and primaries. Both states seem to be heavily supportive of Hillary Clinton, so if Bernie Sanders is able to win any of those states or substantially close the gap coming out of New Hampshire, then we have A real race with real momentum here. If Bernie can't capitalize on that momentum, then we might all be getting excited for no reason. The last thing I want to say about this is that I really wish I had Senator Sanders fundraising power. In his New Hampshire victory speech, Bernie Sanders laid out a small 1 minute and 30 second segment of that speech to ask for donations. And within a 24-hour window of making that statement, he received a total of $6.7 million with the average donation amounting only to $34, ultimately outraising Hillary Clinton by a substantial margin. And I thought to myself, maybe I should try that. So let me take a brief moment here to hold a fundraiser for the podcast. I ask that you please go to the Support Us page at www.npupodcast.com, click on the Support Us on Patreon button, and give whatever you are able to. Whether that's $1, $5, $10, anything is greatly appreciated so we can continue the mission of this podcast to create an independent podcast that treats its listeners like adults, that rather than attacking people, or policies, we can actually discuss the ideas that lay the foundations for our society and are extraordinarily important to us all. And that's it. Let's get into some questions. Our first question comes from Liam Smith. He writes, Hey Spencer, another great episode last week. This week I'd like to ask a less serious question than usual. So if you feel it doesn't fit into the podcast, you don't have to answer it. That's okay. I want to answer all questions. Anyway, back to Liam. I would be interested in your answer. In the game Skyrim, which side would you choose? Stormcloak or Imperial? I have seen this debated on many sites, with many posts of the size of essays analyzing the military, political, and economic implications of either side winning. It certainly took me a long time to choose, but I eventually sided with the Imperials, Because I feel that a united empire is certainly stronger. The imperial military is overall superior. And most importantly, if you side with the empire, you can shout, die rebel scum. Thanks for reading, Liam. Liam also reminds me that the Irish general election campaign is underway. And that's something I'm definitely going to start paying attention to in the future as the election date comes closer and closer to us. I don't know much about Irish politics, and I'm going to assume most of you out there don't know that much either, so it would be cool to all learn about it together and give me something else to talk about besides the American presidential campaign. Onwards to your question, though. Let me give a little bit of background in case there's anyone who hasn't played the game Skyrim. Skyrim is an open-world RPG where you have the opportunity to create your character and Explore the vast mythological world of Skyrim, completing quests, joining guilds, and overthrowing kings. It's one of the best RPGs ever made, and is still played religiously by people now almost five years after its release. The game is set in the Skyrim region of the Elder Scrolls world, and this Skyrim region is a region very similar to Scandinavia and its natural inhabitants, have a very Norse-like culture. Skyrim is part of the larger Imperial Empire that has subjugated the territory. And the game throws you into a fierce civil war between the Imperial Empire and the native Skyrim residents. The Imperial Empire, I should say, has very close resemblances to the Roman Empire in the game. And to answer your question, Liam, I always firmly supported the Imperial Empire. And there's a great Monty Python skit from the movie Life of Brian that amplifies exactly why I support the Imperials over the Stormcloaks. Stormcloaks, by the way, being the native residents of Skyrim. So in this Monty Python skit, the Jewish rebels are conspiring to overthrow the Roman Empire. Anyway... Let me play it for you, now. They've taken everything we had! And not just from us! From our fathers! And from our fathers' fathers! And from our fathers' fathers' fathers! Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers! You're right, Stern. don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads? Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads. Irrigation, medicine, yeah. education. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's something oh, yeah. we've really misrated the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly like to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system, and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up. So, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time. You can tell that I'm a huge fan of the Roman Empire. And just about anything that even remotely resembles the Roman Empire, I'm automatically on board with. That's why in Fallout New Vegas, the best faction is Caesar's Legion. And in Skyrim, the best faction are the Imperials and their mighty empire. We don't have to go very far to find historical examples that are like this Skyrim scenario the Romans invaded and occupied Britain and Gaul. They never did occupy any of the Scandinavian or Norse territories, but the natural inhabitants of both France and Britain at the time of the Roman conquest would resemble the Stormcloaks far more than they would resemble the Imperial Empire. So, ask yourself, if you were a native Gaelic or British inhabitant of France or Britain, under the rule of the Roman Empire, who would you support? Would you support overthrowing the Roman Empire and becoming your own independent country? Or would you support continued unification with the Empire? And that's the best way you could probably answer the question of who do you support? The Stormcloaks or the Imperials? Thanks for the question, Liam. I hope that was a satisfactory answer. Our next question comes from Yi Lu Chung. Yi writes... Dear Spencer, I recently learned, to my dismay, that Bernie Sanders has far less non-white support than Hillary Clinton. So far, I haven't heard of a reasonable explanation. Since you have been closely following U.S. politics, I was wondering how you would explain this phenomenon. Regards, Yi. Well, I think there's a lot of different factors, Yi. The first off, is that Bernie Sanders' record when it comes to supporting minority equality and civil rights movements is, for the most part, not well known in the general public. So I think there's definitely a lack of information there, a lack of knowledge about Bernie Sanders, in my opinion, stellar record when it comes to supporting civil rights. You are seeing a lot more minority philosophers, leaders, and key community figures coming out in support of Bernie Sanders. However, a lot of the minority establishment politicians are doing the opposite. They are attacking Bernie Sanders, claiming that he has been absent on the civil rights movement. I'm not sure how many people would be persuaded by these attacks, but I do think it's a definite possibility they could be. So there's the factor of not only having a lack of information out there, but also misinformation being spread around. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, has been a very visible public figure throughout most of her life. So her support in terms of civil rights and equality movements is far more well-known among the general public. So that's why a lot of non-white voters are immediately putting up their tents in the Hillary camp. The last factor here, I think, is a feeling among minority groups that someone who isn't a minority or belong to a perceived marginalized group cannot understand and forward the specific plights of minority voters. So, I think there's an aspect of non-white voters looking at Clinton and feeling that they have more in common with her than with Bernie Sanders. But as we've seen throughout the history of the civil rights movement, is that you need to have members of all parties working together in order to achieve change at a national level. So the idea that people who belong to these majority groups cannot help the minority groups has proven historically to not be the case. And the best way for Bernie Sanders to combat this disparity is what I think he's already doing, which is getting his record out there, getting his record known among the general public, letting people know that Bernie Sanders has been fighting for civil rights going back to the early 60s. That, as in most cases, Bernie Sanders was doing it before it was cool. So there you go, ye. That's what I think contributes to this phenomenon. That there's not enough information out there compounded with misinformation and a natural feeling of closeness towards Hillary Clinton among minority voters that creates this disparity. Thanks for the question, Yee. I hope that answer was satisfactory. Our next question comes from Michael Simmons. Michael writes, Hi Spencer, I have two quick questions regarding your opinions on Bernie Sanders and suggestions for something I'd like to see on the show at some point if possible. First question, do you believe Bernie Sanders is capable of accomplishing any of the promises he's made if elected? I'm an American college student at the moment, so I think it's safe to assume that some of his proposals I'd be in favor of. But every promise that he makes, I wonder if he'll be able to do even half of it. I look at Obama's presidency, and I find myself slightly jaded now, When I hear a candidate like Sanders promise all these left-leaning policies, when I know he's going to have to force it through the Republican-dominated Senate and House, I think Sanders has the potential to be a polarizing figure, just like Obama was, because he routinely asserts himself as a socialist, which is still largely a dirty word in America. The last point provides a perfect segue into my second question, which is, do you think Bernie is good or bad for socialism in terms of his messaging and branding. Specifically, does his populist message, which quite frankly relies on some fear and anger about the other taking from us, in this case the rich and the poor, make him the liberal version of Donald Trump? Personally, I like his message overall. I think it goes a bit too far at times, and I could easily agree with someone who's on the fence and isn't that familiar about socialism and its various applications who would be turned off by some of Sanders' rhetoric. Lastly, I'd like to suggest that at some point on the show, you could bring on a guest for the discussion. I think it would be really interesting, especially if you two happened to disagree on a topic. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this, and keep up the great work. I'm loving the show so far. Sincerely, Mike Simmons. So let me deal with the last part first, and that is I would love to have another guest on the show. And I have lots of guests that I'm planning on asking to join me sometime in the near future. In the immediate future, though, I'm trying to bring on a personal friend of mine. He's chief of staff for the conservative MP in my writing and is an insider within the party. So, given the fact I don't lean exclusively left, however, if I think you were to take all my policy positions in an aggregate, then I would be left-leaning. I think it would be good to have a conservative come and voice their opinions and ideas on the show. And it wouldn't be a debate, necessarily, because while me and him disagree on a lot of issues, we are always able to keep our discussions respectful of one another's positions. So I'm hoping to do that as soon as next month. If we can work something out together. So guests are absolutely in the pipeline. But now to answer the core of your question, which is, do you think Bernie Sanders actually has a chance of accomplishing what he set out to accomplish? And the only way he could do that within the American system is if everybody votes for Democrats in Congress and in the Senate in 2016. Meaning that he will have to have a substantial down ballot effect, that his presidency will boost people coming out to vote for Democratic candidates. Many establishment pundits are saying that no, he will not have a down ballot effect. However, given his recent two primary elections, he's been overperforming his poll results, showing that he does have an effect to pull in a wide variety of people and people who you didn't expect to become part of the democratic process before. So I think it's definitely possible he can have a down-ballot effect, as most inspirational candidates often do. Candidates like Hillary Clinton, who are establishment candidates, not inspirational candidates, generally have the opposite effect. They repress the vote and decrease voter turnout, so I think Hillary Clinton would actually increase the chances of a Republican winning if she becomes the nominee. Because Bernie Sanders isn't out there trying to convince Republicans to vote for him. He's out there trying to convince people who don't normally vote to vote for him. And that's a far better strategy than trying to convince the other side. There are millions upon millions of Americans out there who are disengaged with the political system. And if Bernie Sanders can re-engage them, then he has a clear winning strategy. This is what Jeremy Corbyn did during his labor leadership election, was inspire people who weren't normally voters. And this is what Justin Trudeau did in the last Canadian election, inspiring a total of 4 million new Canadians to come out and vote for him. So, in my opinion, he doesn't need to spend time acquiescing to Republicans. He needs to spend time engaging people who are unengaged, which has, again, proven to be a winning electoral strategy as of late. So, if Bernie Sanders is elected as the presidential candidate, I suspect he will have a down-ballot effect and increase the likelihood of there being more Democrats in the House and Senate. However, let's say that he doesn't. Let's say that he doesn't have that down-ballot effect and he's elected and has to face down a Republican Senate and House. In that case, I don't believe he will be able to do much of what he promised to do. However, I do believe he will never stop fighting to get it done. And that's a lot more than I can say for Obama, who seems to fold as soon as he faces even the most mild resistance. As to your second point, I believe that Bernie Sanders is only good for socialism in terms of its branding and messaging. You'll see that the overwhelming majority of people who support Bernie Sanders are between the ages of 30 and 18. These people clearly don't see socialism as a bad word. In fact, they're gravitating towards a self-proclaimed democratic socialist, which means that as time goes on, Socialism will only become a more and more accepted word in American society, as those who have bad memories of the Cold War slowly age and eventually die. So, if socialism is already on the rise in terms of its public perception in America, and we're on the cusp of potentially electing a democratic socialist president, then we can only imagine what 2020 might have in store. That imagine if an establishment candidate wins the 2016 election. That discontent, that political alienation that most people, especially in younger age groups, feel will only grow. And if the political establishment manages to hold on to this election, then 2020 will bring a political reckoning. But I do want to address your point that he is kind of like, the Donald Trump of the left. It's true they do share some similarities and they are both tapping in to an anger that exists on both sides of the political spectrum. Where the difference lies is in the fact that Bernie Sanders has far greater depth and knowledge than Donald Trump and is able to support all his policy suggestions with specifics while Donald Trump speaks largely in vague policy positions with, of course, the exceptions of his very well-defined immigration policy. To put this in a simpler way, Donald Trump uses rhetoric to support his ideas. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, teaches his ideas. Rhetoric, essentially, is persuasive speech without depth, without teaching, without elaborating. Bernie Sanders uses persuasive speech with teaching, with points, with specifics. So, while they're both tapping in to the same sentiment, they're doing it in very different ways. And I don't think Bernie Sanders really has any problem with people being rich. He himself is a rich man. It's more of a problem when the rich have far more influence over our political society than the average person does. When the rich control the political system, that's when it's gone too far. And that's what I think He's railing against more than the fact that these people are rich in and of itself. Thanks for the great question, Michael, and I hope that was a satisfactory answer. Our last question comes from Thomas McKillen. Thomas writes, Dear Spencer, thanks for the informative podcast up to this point. I'm a Canadian living in Toronto, and I'm very curious to know if you have been following the Gian Gomeshi trial here in Canada. As well, I was curious to know if it had any implications for future sexual assault trials. I personally can't stand the media circus surrounding the trial and I feel like I can never get unbiased information about it. Every news outlet already has an opinion on the case and seems to be trying to push that opinion onto as many people as they can. Thanks for taking the time to read my question, Thomas. Thanks for the great question, Thomas, but we're going to need a bit of backstory for those people outside of Canada. I haven't been to Toronto in quite some time. All that I know is that people in Toronto and Edmonton probably share a similar pain in terms of how abysmal their hockey teams are, but let's talk about Gian here. So, for those of you who don't know, Gian Gomeshi was a very popular radio host here in Canada. He ran a popular cultural show in which he would interview musicians and artists and that sort of thing called Q. However, his tenure as the host of Q came to an abrupt end when three different women came forward with allegations of sexual assault against Gomeshi. These women all came out with similar stories about how Gion punched or choked them. Gion claimed that, yes, he's into BDSM sexual activity, and occasionally it would get rough. However, he maintains that everything was consensual and no sexual assault ever occurred. After quite some time out of the public spotlight, now everything is once again back in the public spotlight after the sexual assault trial just recently got underway, and now everyone across the country is talking about it. And it's not tough to see why. This story immediately has all the elements to make it a point of public interest. It has a sex scandal, and not just an ordinary sex scandal, but some sort of scary deviation of sexual activity. And nothing gets people more interested in a story than that. As well as it surrounds the issue of sexual assault in our society, an extremely controversial issue, And it immediately lends itself to two sides, given the fact that this man was a celebrity here in Canada. So, it doesn't matter what the courts say. The majority of people have already made up their opinion on this case one way or another. People have already decided whether he's guilty or he's innocent. Personally, I took the track of, I don't know. I never listened to Jian's show before I heard about him. ...through this sexual assault trial, so I don't have a strong opinion. And I'm willing to wait and see what the evidence reveals on both sides before I make a judgment. I'm perfectly willing to say that I don't know if Xi'an sexually assaulted those women. I have no idea if he's guilty or innocent. The only way I'm going to have some idea of the truth is through a criminal trial. Unfortunately, though, when it comes to this particular trial there isn't much evidence because a lot of these allegations are coming sometimes a decade after the fact. So, ultimately, the trial boils down to a he said, she said showdown. And a lot of people are criticizing the way the justice system conducts sexual assault trials. Because now we've had all the women come forth and give their testimony about Jian. However, they have received withering cross-examinations from Jian's defense attorneys to discredit their stories and characters. Unfortunately, though, because that's the only evidence we have to go on, the defense is left with no other strategy than to try and discredit the witness. So a lot of people are coming out and saying, it's Jian who's on trial, not these women. You're being too hard on these women. You're re-victimizing them all over again. And it will reduce the amount of women who want to report sexual assault in the future. And while this may all be true, unfortunately, no one has given any viable alternatives to our current justice system that also protect the rights of the accused. Because at some point, You are going to have to tell your story if you want to get a conviction of sexual assault. And by our current legal code, the accused has the right to face their accuser. So how can we protect that legal right the accused has if the accuser won't come to court and tell their story? I think there's a lot of people who want to see Gian guilty. And honestly, the prosecution witnesses don't seem to be that strong, the defense has revealed numerous contradictions, including these women continually trying to contact Jian and flirting with him after the alleged abuse, and the defense bringing up these facts certainly muddies the waters and sets that bar of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt much higher. So a lot of these media outlets simply just don't like the fact that the defense is muddying the waters and making it more difficult for people to draw their own conclusions. Yet again, though, we haven't had any reasonable alternatives to the system we have now proposed. We certainly just can't take everybody at their word. Victims don't run the criminal justice system. Victims cannot run the criminal justice system the criminal justice system must remain a neutral arbiter of justice. So, until you have a reasonable proposal that will maintain the justice system's role within our Constitution, then, as far as I'm concerned, you should just let the system play out before making any kind of judgments to the public. So, I agree with you. I don't like the media circus surrounding this trial. I wish everybody would just sit back, let the evidence be presented, and then make a reasonable assumption based on the evidence we have. Unfortunately, that's not going to work for the average Canadian or the media, it seems. So, despite what the verdict ends up being, I think there's going to be a lot of controversy. And this story won't be dying down for a little while yet. Thanks for the question, Thomas. I hope that was a satisfactory response. And with that, we are at the end of our 8th episode of Naples Ultra. You're going to have to tune in next week for our ninth episode and our 3rd engagement episode, which is another one I'm very excited for. Next week, we're going to be looking at one of the oldest and most influential pieces of literature that has ever been produced. We are going to be examining Sun Tzu's Art of War. I believe a lot of people misinterpret the art of war they don't get the full context of the book and i'm hoping to open up some fresh ideas and fresh perspectives on this ancient piece of work so i hope you'll join us next week for episode nine of naples ultra sun tzu said that after receiving your responses in regards to the question at the end of the episode i have decided to keep them in as most of you vocalized your support for it So I'm not going to read everyone's responses this week. But we are going to have a real question this week. And that is, who do you support? Stormcloak or Imperial? And why do you support them? I'll see everybody next week. And until that time, this is Spencer Downing, signing off. And you guys, take care.